Okay, so Psalm 34. Now, we've just started a new series at Southern Districts looking at gospel promises. The scriptures actually provide uh, many promises or many reasons as to why we should be saved. And, of course, the, the first and most fundamental is that we would be delivered from a coming judgment. Um, but that's not the only reason that's given in Scripture. In fact, there's, there's a whole plethora of reasons presented to us for why we should be saved. Uh, salvation brings with it a quality of life. Uh, it's not only about being saved from wrath to come, but salvation is actually concerned with the here and now and how we live. And so salvation relates to our present existence as well as eternity. Salvation is actually uh, depicted for us in scripture as a treasure trove of blessings. Uh, you come to Jesus Christ and believe upon him and keep believing, you will know the blessing of God. You'll know the blessing of rest, you'll know the blessing of joy, you'll know the blessing of love and contentment and fulfillment and all of these things. And we are exhorted to come to God for these reasons. First and foremost, to be saved from judgment to come, but it doesn't stop there. And so this morning, I mean, I'm not going to obviously elaborate on, on, on joy and, and um, contentment and all of these things. That's what I'm doing at Southern District. So this morning, what I do want to do is from Psalm 34 and a couple of verses, I want us to consider the wonder of salvation, why we should come to God and keep coming to God and the blessings that that will mean for us in the here and the now. Now, I read from a different version from what was read earlier. I think you read from the ESV. Is, is that right? Oh, the NIV. Um, I read from the New King James Version, and not because it's a superior version. It's just what I'm used to, and I've been reading, reading it for 30 years, and I'm a creature of habit. I, I was going to read the whole of the psalm, but maybe because there are differences, I'll just read what is relevant to the sermon um, this morning, and I'll explain a bit about the psalm anyway. But let's note, just to begin with, Psalm 34, let me draw your attention uh, to the superscription, or in other words, the introduction uh, before verse 1. A psalm of David when he pretended madness before Abimelech, who drove him away and he departed. So that's important for us to know. And then let's just read verses uh, 8 to 10. O oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. O oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. There is no want to those who fear him. The young lions lack and suffer hunger, but those who seek the Lord shall not lack any good thing. Now, let me just give to you the background of this psalm because it is helpful for us. Now, you'll see, according to the superscription, that introduction, uh, that this was written by David at that time when he was fleeing away from Saul and he went into an area called Gath or a town called Gath, which was in Philistia. Now, this was really quite a, a foolish thing on the part of David. Gath was the hometown of Goliath. And uh, so in seeking to, to get away from the murderous Saul, he goes into a, a region of the world where he is well and truly hated. And uh, he is taken into custody and he is brought before the king. And as we are told, he feigns madness. Now, 
Uh, you can actually read about this yourself in 1 Samuel 21, 10 to 15. That's where, it's, uh, that's where we find it back in the Old Testament, in the life of David. And uh, David pretends to be mad. Now, the king before whom he's brought, uh, we are told in Psalm 34, it's Abimelech. If you go into 1 Samuel chapter 21, you'll see that it's Achish. And so, of course, the liberals take hold of this and they tell us that there are inconsistencies and faults with the Bible, but we understand the difference like this. Abimelech is the dynastic name. It's the dynasty like Pharaoh. Achish is the personal name of the king. So David is arrested and he's brought before Achish. And his life is very much in danger. So what does he do? He behaves like a madman. He makes himself froth at the mouth so the saliva runs down his beard and he scratches around like an animal. Now, just to paraphrase the, the, the response of Akish, he basically says, what need have I got of this madman? I've got enough madmen already. There are enough crazy people in Gath without uh, adding to the number. Send him away. Get rid of him. And so David flees from Gath and out of Philistia and he goes to a place called Adullam and he hides in a cave. Now this psalm is written in response to his experience. And what David recognises here is, is that although he put on this performance, he didn't actually rescue himself. Um, it could have gone pear-shaped. He could have lost his life at the hand of the king. He recognises that in this, God had actually delivered him. And this is a psalm of praise and thanksgiving. And as we see in the psalm, if you read through it and you go through the verses, there's more to it than just physical deliverance. In fact, in terms of our understanding the Old Testament, when we see uh, physical and earthly blessings and physical and earthly deliverances, they always point us to something far greater spiritually. Uh, the blessings that we have in terms of salvation through Jesus Christ, Israel's promised Messiah. What I want us to consider then uh, this morning, just very briefly uh, in our sermon, is verse 8 in Psalm 34. And we will make reference to a couple of other verses around, Psalm, uh, around verse 8 as well. The first thing I want us to consider from verse 8 is an invitation to be blessed. An invitation to be blessed. So David says, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Now it is a natural thing if we have had some kind of pleasant experience or some sort of rewarding experience that we want to let other people know and we want to invite other people to share in that experience. What happens when you read a good book? You recommend the book to other people. I mean, obviously, if it's a Christian book and it's been of some value to your soul, you want other people to receive the benefits as well. I've recommended many books over the years. In fact, such has been my enthusiasm with some books, I just buy copies and, and give them away. Uh, not because I'm wealthy or anything like that, but because I see the value in reading. Go to a good restaurant. What's the natural thing to do when you've had a very enjoyable meal? You tell other people, you recommend the restaurant, you may even take them along because you want them to experience the enjoyment that you have had. David has experienced a most marvellous deliverance through the hand of God when he very easily 
could have lost his life. And he wants to share that experience with others. This psalm is the fruit of what he went through. He had known the grace and goodness of God, some of which he relates to here. He'd experienced the grace and goodness of God in many other ways throughout his life. So David most certainly is a man of thanksgiving and praise, and he expresses himself in poetry, wanting others to read of what he has been through and how he knows the Lord, that they also might experience the same. And so he describes in this psalm how God has helped him. And furthermore, he desires that those around him, the Israelites, the Jews, would know God in the same manner. Now, the language that David uses here is really important. And the way he frames his expression, he is the master poet. And so we would imagine in his writings that there is a lot of symbolism and expression, and so we find it here. And he speaks of tasting of the Lord. Taste and see that the Lord is good. If we read through verse 8, we can understand this idea of tasting to be referring to faith, that others like him would have faith in God. Look at verse 8. Blessed is the man who trusts in him, who trusts in God. The idea of faith is to trust in the Lord. It is to cast ourselves upon him for the forgiveness of our sins. It is to trust in God's mercy with our eternal destiny. And beyond that, it's also to trust in God for our everyday temporal needs and our desires and our concerns. But the question, of course, is this. Why does David refer to faith or trust as tasting? Why does David not just say something like, have faith in the Lord? Trust in the Lord, blessed is the man who trusts in him. Blessed is the man who has faith in God. Why does he not just say that? We see tasting, the idea of tasting, captures something of the richness of faith. You see, there is more to David's experience than just a physical, earthly, temporal uh, deliverance. There is more to faith and being one of God's people than just subscribing to a set of rules. And sometimes with Christianity, and very sad to say, there are people who treat it in a very moralistic way. We're saved simply to obey some commands. Well, it's true. Of course we obey the commands of God. But God didn't save us to simply obey a set of rules. Faith brings us into union with God. The theologians speak of the mystical union. We are joined to Jesus Christ We are in him. Of course, I'm using New Testament language in a way that David wouldn't. But we are in Christ and Christ is in us. New Testament describes believers as the temple of the Holy Spirit. 
we collectively here this morning as the church of God are his temple. We are the dwelling place of God's spirit. This was anticipated through the physical temple and tabernacle under the old covenant. But we are God's temple. You know, through faith, God no longer relates to us as judge, though of course he certainly is judge, but he relates to us as father. The curse of the law has been done away with. God's law is no longer a death sentence to us. He is a heavenly father to whom we relate, to whom we can come to. We receive acceptance and forgiveness and blessing. You see, when we speak of faith, we are talking about a living relational dynamic by which we know God. It's to be restored to him. Christianity in its essence is not simply about a set of rules. It's about communion with the one who made us and has saved us from our sins. Christianity is to know the effects of the work of the Holy Spirit within us. We refer to that as sanctification, whereby the Spirit changes our desires, he changes our worldview, he changes our priorities. I've been saved now for, what is it? It's coming up to uh, 33 years. I'm not the person I once was. Thank God I'm not the person that I will be. There's still a very long way to go, I can assure you of that. I still struggle and battle with sin. But I can say this much, I'm not what I was when I was 21. Far from it. Because the Lord has worked. Christianity is to commune with God through prayer and through his word and through corporate worship. It is God moulding us into the image of his son. It is God working within us his own righteous character. And so what I'm saying to you this morning is this. Faith is an active principle within our lives, in our hearts and minds, and as such... We experience the effects of it. And in order to convey the blessings and the richness of what faith is, David draws upon something that we can all relate to. Eating food. A very common and ordinary thing. A sense of taste. We eat food for a variety of reasons. Of course, we eat food for physical nourishment because we need strength. If you don't eat, obviously, you will die. But that's not the only reason why we eat food. We eat food for comfort. We eat food because we enjoy food. We, we eat food because of the pleasure that it brings to us. Uh, we had a very nice meal last night, and um, it had salad and meat and all of that kind of thing. But afterwards, my wife and I had a little tart uh, with cream and... Uh, caramel and what I didn't eat that for sustenance or for my health I ate that purely for pleasure we all eat for pleasure and this is actually what David is drawing upon through faith your soul is nourished you gain strength to live as God would have you to live but you know more than that faith brings satisfaction to our lives it brings contentment it brings pleasure it brings joy through faith, you discover what real life is. I'd put it to you this morning, if you're not saved, you just exist. You don't live. 
For those outside of Christ, and I say this sadly, not, not in a nasty way, life is just existence, just day after day, paying the bills, saving for the next new car, going on holidays, getting a better job, just round, the endless cycle round and round and round it goes until you get old and you die. That's just to exist. Only believers live because we have spiritual life. We know the one who made us. We are brought into union with him. He becomes father. There is a relationship that unfolds. And so this is what David is putting to us. In this psalm, and I would argue in all of the psalms, in fact, the language that David uses here to describe faith is used throughout all of Scripture. Let me give to you some examples. Isaiah 55, verses 1 to 2. Isaiah is full of beautiful gospel promises. Isaiah is just so loaded with gospel in the Old Testament. And this is one of them, Isaiah 55, 1 to 2. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. Waters in the Old Testament invariably, almost, uh, invariably relate to salvation and blessing. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Yes, come, buy wine and milk, without money and without price. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and let your soul delight itself in abundance. This is the promise given to those who come to God in faith and the satisfaction and the joy that will be theirs. And you look at the, the language that the prophet uses. Coming to God is like drinking water. Come to the waters. We need water to sustain life. How long can you live without water? A few days at the very most. But it's not just water that's provided. The prophet speaks of wine and milk. Milk is what babies drink. It's full of nutrition. They need that milk in order to grow. But come and buy wine. Wine is a substance of pleasure to enjoy. We don't need wine the way we need water or a child would need milk, but it is the stuff of richness and pleasure. And, of course, the prophet Isaiah is speaking spiritually. Why do you spend all of your time working and buying that which does not satisfy while you ignore that which really will enrich your life? Come and buy without money, he says. In other words, you can't purchase the goodness of God through your works or with cash, but through faith. Why waste your life on the transient and temporal things of this world when I offer so much? Come and drink and eat. Come and believe and have your souls nourished and blessed. Psalm 119, verse 103. The psalmist says, How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Now, occasionally you meet the odd person that doesn't like, uh, doesn't like eating honey. I'm not one of them. I love the stuff. 
but some people don't like honey. I'm very fortunate that the older fellow over the road from me, he's taken up beekeeping and uh, he comes over with jars of honey and I love it. Um, now, whatever it is you enjoy eating, we all enjoy something sweet, right? Sweetness does something to the taste buds. I dare say there's nobody here that doesn't like chocolate in some form. There is a sweetness that's pleasurable to the mouth. The psalmist is saying, for those who believe, there is a sweetness to the soul with the truth. Just as honey or something sweet brings delight to our mouths, the truths related to God's goodness, his salvation, his mercy, his love, is sweet to those who believe. Who amongst you that names the name of Jesus Christ that is saved ever grows weary of hearing about and thinking about those great salvific doctrines of justification, of adoption, of forgiveness, of the hope that we have of better things to come in a new heavens and a new earth? Who ever grows weary of the love and the mercy and the kindness of God? Are not such truths truly delightful to the soul? Sweeter than honey is to the mouth. And there are many such verses in the um, New Testament, many such examples, I should say. John 4, 13 to 14, that encounter between Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well, remember how she goes and she takes the water every day. She's got the same arduous, endless journey of getting water and going back to the village. And uh, Jesus says to her, whoever drinks of this water, that physical water, will thirst again. <clears throat> but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. Well, she needs that physical water and she's got to make that daily journey. She's got to draw from the well or she won't have anything to drink. But Jesus' point is that physical water only does so much. It provides temporary relief, a temporary satisfaction. But I will give you something that will give you an eternal satisfaction, an eternal life. Look at how it's described, a fountain of water springing up, frothing up, bubbling up from within into everlasting life. A picture I think of joy and satisfaction. That water that you take will only do so much for you. But I can take you far beyond that. In these verses, and there are many others, there is a repeated emphasis on the satisfaction, the enrichment, the joy that comes through faith in God. You know, the Shorter Catechism and the famous first question of the Shorter Catechism, what is the chief end of man? Chief, chief end meaning what is man's main purpose? And we know the answer, don't we? Man's chief end or his main purpose is to glorify God and enjoy God forever. When does that enjoyment begin? It begins now. It begins the moment you believe. 
Because the moment that you believe, you enter into God's rest. You partake of his peace. You receive joy. You become content with what you have because you have him. You know, in our reform circles, in conservative circles, we get nervous when Christians speak of experience and there can be the, perhaps the suspicion that there's a charismatic tendency when it comes to experience. You know, we are people of objective truth and rightly so. But David reminds us here that objective truth leads to subjective experience. Faith is grounded in the objective truth of who God is. According to the psalm here, who is God? He is good. That is objective truth. And we'll come to this in a moment. Our faith is grounded in objective truth. But subjectively, we experience God's goodness in our lives. Because God's goodness is not uh, just a theory, it is not in the abstract, it is something we receive, it is something we participate in, it is experiential. That's the point that David is making. Come and taste and see for yourself. Know the goodness of the Lord, even as I have experienced it. God is good. Come and taste, come and know for yourself. What does it practically mean? Well, we've already explained it, I suppose, but it means that through faith we will find deep inner satisfaction and fulfilment. We will know that as we commune with him, as we walk with him in obedience, as we serve him. He will impart the blessings of peace and rest and joy and comfort and hope. Now, these blessings will fluctuate from person to person. We won't always know them in their fullest measure. In fact, I don't suppose we ever can know them in their fullest measure. And they can be lost for various reasons, and I'll touch on that as we close the sermon. But everybody who believes is no longer a lost person, wandering aimlessly through life, trying to find meaning and purpose and satisfaction. They find meaning and purpose and satisfaction in him. They find goodness and purpose in him. So that's the first thing I want to draw to your attention. The second thing I want us to consider is the promise of God's goodness. So the invitation, firstly, to be blessed, and secondly, the promise of God's goodness. Now, David asserts that God will do good through faith, and that is because he is good. That's the objective truth I was just referring to. And this relates to character. Everything God does is good by virtue of the fact that he is good. God cannot sin. God cannot do anything but good because of who he is. So God is not capricious. God is not malicious. God is not erratic. God does not unnecessarily behave unfavourably towards people. God does not promise one thing and do something else. Psalm 119, verse 68. 
you are good and do good. There is a universe of truth in those few words. You are good. And because you are good, you do good. Matthew 7, 9 to 11. What man is there among you who, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Now, this raises a really important issue that needs to be addressed. And in fact, in some respects, it's addressed in the psalm itself. This idea of God's goodness does not mean that we will like everything that God does. It does not mean that life will always be rosy. You know that sort of false teaching, the prosperity kind of gospel, become a Christian and things will fall into place. And there's very much false teaching. If you become a Christian, then your marital problems will be solved, you'll be successful in business, your health concerns will be resolved. No, not necessarily. Those blessings may come, they may not. God most certainly will bring difficult providences into our lives. I'll say it again, most, uh, most certainly, beyond any shadow of a doubt, God at various points will make your life difficult. There is no question of that. But being of perfect character, he only does so because it is absolutely necessary. Lamentations 3, verse 33. He does not afflict willingly nor grieve the children of men. It is not in God's nature to enjoy suffering. God is not like one of those little boys that catches insects and pulls the wings off or pulls the legs off and leaves them to suffer in the sun or is cruel to, to pets or that kind of thing. God does not enjoy human suffering. In fact, the scriptures make the point that judgment is his strange work. If I can frame it in these words, God always prefers mercy, always, unequivocally, God would rather show mercy. However, according to sovereign design and wisdom, he finds it necessary at times to afflict people. And being perfect in character, he does it the right way, to the right degree, and takes no pleasure in people finding life difficult. If people suffer, there must be a good reason for it because he is good. He can't be anything else but good. There is no sin in him. Now, this is stressed to us in Hebrews chapter 12, where the author to the Hebrews reassures believers that God brings affliction into our lives because he is a loving Heavenly Father. There's quite a few parents here. How many parents discipline your children? All of you, I hope. Why do you discipline your children? Because you hate them? You discipline your children because you love them and you want them to be certain kind of people. You want to discipline them for life, to live as they should, ultimately to know the Lord but to make a good go of life. What kind of horrible wretches do children become that are never disciplined? And the author to the Hebrews uses that as an analogy to draw us to our Heavenly Father who is perfect, 
Of course he disciplines us. Why does he do so? Because his training is in righteousness. And righteousness is not cultivated within us when life is always rosy and things fall into place and everything is as we like it. In fact, we become spoilt, we become demanding, we become self-sufficient, we never grow, we never mature. And so we need to understand in this context of thinking about the goodness of God and the blessings that come to us through salvation, that it does not mean that life will always be as we like it. And in fact, that is the context of this particular psalm, Psalm 34. I've explained a little bit of the background to it. David wrote this psalm when he was on the run. He was running for his life. And we don't know exactly at what point he wrote this. Was he hiding in the cave of Adullam? In a cold, damp cave on his own? Was that when he wrote this psalm? Was it afterwards? Because we know, of course, with David's history that life was never easy. There were challenges in all kinds of ways. We don't know at what point David wrote this, but we do know that his life at times was like this. It was up and down like it is for the rest of us. David faced all sorts of issues. Yet nevertheless, whenever this was written, look what he says in verse 1. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. God is to be continually praised because he is continually good, irrespective of what our circumstances may be like. We find the goodness of God just as much in life when it is painful as when it is pleasant. Psalm 145 was read to us earlier. This was a psalm that was written at the end of David's life. And, and David is reflecting back over a long life. David was an old man. But he doesn't look back with rose-coloured glasses. Now, I'm, I'm not an old man, although I've got a fair bit of grey and my family keep reminding me that I'm getting very thin... But I find as I get older, I reminisce. And I think back to the days of my youth and I talk to my kids about the 1970s when I was a boy growing up and such like things. And it tends to be the older we get, the more we sort of reminisce and people become sentimental and they think about the good old days and they forget that the good old days had their fair share of trouble. Now, in Psalm 145, David is not reminiscing he's not got rose-coloured glasses on longing for the days of his youth when he was looking after sheep far from it David had experienced his fair share of upheaval and grief in fact he'd experienced a lot of it a lot David's life had been blessed it had also been a life also of turmoil what did what did David ever do to Saul David was a faithful servant of God's people, yet Saul sought to take his life. That's why he's on the run on this occasion. David went through not the death of one child, but several children. And we know, of course, with Bathsheba, that God's hand in judgment fell upon that child. But you know what? The child was innocent. The child lost its life for the sin of its parents. And David had to live with that. That must be hard to live with. I nearly lost a child. Came very close to losing a child. Six weeks of intensive care, nearly six months in hospital, five years ago. I can't think of anything more emotionally 
racking than the death or the near death of a child. David lost a little one through his own sin and had to live with that. David's great burden, the one thing David wanted to do in his ministry as a king was build for the Lord a house. You know, we dwell in our fine houses, says David, whereas God dwells in a tent. Yet he was never allowed to fulfil that ambition that fell to his son. Surely there was some frustration on his part. I'm sure he was glad to know that it would be built, but he never got to do it. David went through the treachery of friends, close confidants turned on him, and I think perhaps worst of all was the rebellion and death of his son Absalom. You know, David grieved over the death of Saul, but that's nothing compared to the death of his son Absalom. And Absalom did terrible things to his father, things that can barely be mentioned, though, were that disgraceful, what Absalom did in his rebellion. Yet David never stopped loving him. He was his son. And the Lord took Absalom's life and David grieved and he grieved and he grieved. As it is with all of us, David's life was one of ups and downs. David in Psalm 23 speaks of the green pastures, the beautiful times in life when there's peace and there's fullness and the sun shines. And David also spoke of the valley of the shadow of death when things are not so pleasant. Mountaintops and valleys. For David, life was a mixture of regret and happiness, tears and joy, as it is for all of us. And at the end of it all, David says, in Psalm 145, verses 8 and 9, and we could read the whole psalm, the whole thing is a psalm of praise. Psalm 145, 8 and 9, The Lord is gracious and full of compassion, slow to anger and great in mercy. The Lord is good to all. And his tender mercies are over all his works. David doesn't look back at an embittered man. David's not an angry man. He's not a disillusioned man. Life's had its ups and downs. Life throws its curveballs at us. But David takes stock and he sees the mercy and the goodness of God and he's full of praise and thanksgiving. When all was said and done, David regarded himself to be a man most blessed. And as he points out on one level, the goodness of God extends to all people over all the earth. We refer to this as common grace. Things are far from perfect in this fallen world, yet in spite of its fallenness, God's goodness abounds to all. And we are very apt to complain and we are very apt to point out everything that's wrong. But as it presently stands, there is peace in this land. We are not at civil war. Our cities are not being bombed. There is not anarchy in our streets. There is law. There is order. There is justice. If your house is broken into, you have insurance. You can can go to a court of appeal. We have a judicial system. We have education. We have health care. We're able to drive around. We're able to enjoy the fruits of our labours as we work and we have our gardens and we tend to our houses and we can drive around and get to the shops. And life on the whole is pretty good. And who amongst us cannot say that the Lord has blessed us and blessed everybody around us because God is good and he is kind to humanity. 
And the problems that this world experienced by and large are the problems that people bring upon themselves in their rebellion. When life hurts, we get disgruntled and disillusioned, but the reality is we continue to enjoy far more blessing than we ever realise. And you know the little children's ditty about counting the blessings one by one on your fingers? It's actually a reality that often we overlook. Far more blessings than what we imagine. God is good to all. Unbelievers don't recognise it. But we should. But there's another level to God's goodness that David is referring to in Psalm 145. In verse 8, the Lord is gracious to all. Sorry, the Lord is gracious and full of compassion, slow to anger and great in mercy. The Lord is slow to anger. What does anger relate to? It relates to sin. Too many people have this harsh view of God that he's ever ready to wield the rod. You know, nothing could be further from the truth. God is far more compassion. God is far more patient than what we are with sin. Far more patient with people than what we are. Far more tolerant. I mean, that's a buzzword. God is actually very, very tolerant towards sin. Very patient. This world is yet to be judged. God's allowed it to plough on now for millennia, putting up with people's sin being ever so gracious. But David is mindful of his own sin. He uses two words. He uses compassion and mercy. And those words are important. They're not the same thing. Compassion relates to to somebody who can't help themselves. And we can't help ourselves with regards to sin. We can't deal with the problem of sin. And mercy relates to those who do not deserve help. God is compassionate. He helps those who can't help themselves. And he is merciful. He helps those who don't deserve his kindness. And David's thinking about his own life. You know, David had provoked God and provoked God and provoked God. Do you know that? David is described as a man who who has a heart after God's own heart, which is true. David was also a sinner. We think primarily, don't we, of, uh, of, of adultery and murder by proxy. Very, very heinous sins. Very heinous sins. But you know that issue with Bathsheba for David, that's the tip of the iceberg. You know, David had a problem with women. There's no question. David had a huge problem. The, the ladies loved David. David was a very popular figure. He was Israel's hero. They came dancing in the streets. They loved him and he loved them. God tolerated polygamy in Israel, but it was strictly forbidden that kings have more than one wife. How many did David have? We know from counting, David had a harem of probably somewhere in the region, about 20 women. David had provoked God with his sin. And, you know, with power comes a sense of privilege and a sense of right. David was used to getting what he wanted when he saw the the beautiful Bathsheba. I'll have her. I'll just add her to the number. She's married. We'll take care of that. David, in one sense, he was a godly man. He wrote the most beautiful pieces of poetry in the Psalms. But David was a sinner and he provoked God. And he paid for his sins too. The death of the son is one way in which he paid for his sins. God forgives, but there are consequences to sin. Yet as David looks back, he's not disillusioned or embittered. 
He's full of thankfulness and praise because God had extended compassion and mercy to him. God had forgiven David of his sins. Do you know what? God didn't have to forgive David. God's not under obligation to forgive anybody. What, what we deserve is wrath. But God is a forgiving God. God is big with mercy. He is big with compassion. As I said earlier, judgment is his strange work, as Isaiah says. In Psalm 51, that great psalm of repentance, David appeals to God's character. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. According to your loving kindness. According to the multitude of your tender mercies. Take away my sin. And God always responds to faith. God pushes no one away. Those who humble themselves and come to him on his terms, he receives. And he received David and he forgave David of his sin. For some reason, when I was preparing this sermon, I couldn't help but think of uh, Polycarp um, in the first century, the Bishop of Smyrna. And uh, Polycarp was a disciple of John. And uh, as the fires of persecution were turned up, the Roman authorities came looking for him. He was uh, a very old man and uh, he was well known in the region and they couldn't find him. So they got some of his family members and tortured them and they gave up his whereabouts. And the uh, Roman soldiers went to his dwelling and they found him there. And they were surprised at how friendly and gracious he was. He invited them into, into his house and he gave them something to eat and drink. And he said, before you take me away, would you mind if I prayed? And so they were happy for him to pray. And he stood and he prayed for all. He prayed for them. And uh, they took him to a place of execution. And uh, the, the Roman authorities, not just the soldiers, they were very, um, very surprised at how amicable he was, what a gracious and, and kind and, and sort of patient man that he was. And uh, and they pleaded with him, the proconsul pleaded with him to renounce Christ and to acknowledge the emperor, which he refused to do. And uh, they pleaded and pleaded, not wanting to execute him. And uh, he famously said these words, apparently. He said, 86 years I have served him, uh, that is Christ, and uh, he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my saviour? And I couldn't help but reflect upon those words and think of David. David's not a man embittered that God took the life of his son and things didn't always go well and his friends turned on him and you know, Absalom turned on him. And David is full of praise and thanksgiving. Similar to the words of Polycarp. Will I at the end be disillusioned? Will I be disgruntled and angry? I've served him all these years and he's done me no harm. He has only blessed my life. Would I turn at the end and blaspheme his name? Life won't always be easy, but God nonetheless is always good. He continues to bless even as he afflicts. And importantly, it's in life's difficulties that we really discover the depths of the riches of his grace toward us. David says in Psalm 34, 9 and 10, so the verses following verse 8, which we're looking at, David says, O fear the Lord, you his saints. There is no want to those who fear him. The young lions lack and suffer hunger, but those who seek the Lord shall not lack any good thing. Whatever happens, we will not lack the Lord's sustaining power. He will keep us as his people. 
You know, we don't have to enjoy his providence. As the hymn writer says, behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. God always does good because he is good. We face a great deal of change in this country with regards to religious freedom of freedom of speech and we're all concerned and things may get a great deal worse than what they are now. And if they do, is God still good? Yes, he is still good. And what about those Christians in North Korea and China and various other places in the world who are paying the highest price for their faith, losing their lives? Is God still good in those situations? Yes, he is. He is always good and does good, even though we may not understand or like the circumstances in which we find ourselves. So this is an invitation born out of David's own experience. You know, my sermon this morning would be a complete crock of nonsense if all I was doing was reiterating David's words. If I was just saying a few words from this psalm and drawing in a few other passages here and there, if that's all I was doing, this would be farcical. And the reason why I say that is because David is offering an invitation for one to experience for ourselves the goodness of God And if God's goodness had not been my experience, I'd be the biggest of hypocrites. How could I preach to you about the goodness of God unless I myself had received the goodness of God? And I'm here to tell you this morning, along with David, taste for yourselves and see that he is good. That has been my personal experience. These 33, 34 years I have walked with him, he has done me no harm. He has blessed my life beyond measure. Let's wrap things up this morning. The gospel is a command. God commands all men everywhere to repent. And there are consequences for disobedience. God has a right to our lives. God has a right to our service and obedience. But beyond just being a command, the gospel is also an invitation, a most gracious invitation given to sinners An invitation to discover the goodness of God. Not only in terms of being delivered from a future hell, but in terms of knowing him as father. In terms of communing with him and walking with him. Knowing his fellowship and his favour. How gracious is God towards undeserving sinners? And you know, ultimately... This is not an invitation issued by David. It is not an invitation issued by me or any other human being. It is an invitation issued by God himself. God says to all of us, come. In a sense, put me to the test and see. You will not be disappointed. This is obviously a word to those who are yet to believe. You may have your doubts about Christianity You may wonder, if you become a Christian, where will it take you? What will the future hold for you? I can't answer those questions and God won't answer them either. But what does God say? He says, come to me and trust. Believe. Cast yourself upon me. You'll be blessed. You won't regret it. You will never regret it. This is also a word for those who do believe. There are times when we question God's goodness And there are Christians who struggle to know joy and peace and contentment. As I said at the beginning of the sermon, these blessings can be fleeting. 
They fluctuate. And there are many reasons why we may not know joy and peace and rest and some of these things. It could be through sin. It could be because we neglect the means of grace. We could have a sensitive conscience. It could be just a season we are passing through. But understand this. God is not against us. On the contrary, we're going through difficult times and we lack joy and we lack peace. And life is a struggle. He invites us to come and to cast ourselves upon him in weakness and in need. He invites us to take hold of his magnificent word as a word written to us and to believe what the scripture says about us, that we are secure in Christ, that we have a home in heaven, that our sins are forgiven, that we have peace with God. He invites us to the table and to be renewed and refreshed in those wonderful gospel realities. This is my body which is broken for you. This is the cup of the new covenant. Do this in remembrance of me. We ought to have the Lord's Supper regularly reminding us of God's commitment to us. He invites us to repent. Repentance doesn't just mean confessing sin, though it certainly involves that. The whole idea of repentance, every day we turn our faces to God. Repentance is a position of disposition. We keep looking to him, we keep taking hold of his word, we keep believing, we keep praying, we keep confessing our sins. Repentance is to continually orientate our lives to God. And it's as we do, we trust that he will bless us. And help us. And so to every one of us in this room this morning, the invitation comes, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. And may these words be true in our own experience. Amen.